Okay, Psalm 29. This psalm, of course, is attributed to David. Um, and he writes, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The, the Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks it in pieces the, the cedars of Lebanon. And he makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything. Everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. This is a, a, a pretty striking picture of what some would uh, recognize as natural revelation. What in the world is natural revelation? Well, it's not synthetic, right? It's, natural revelation is the idea that God and the reality of who he is can be ascertained by by simply looking at the creation. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We see here in Romans 1, Paul's argument for natural revelation. It is, it is clear to him that anyone and everyone should be able to, to discern the reality of God and his presence simply by looking at creation. Um, begin with me. Oh, I have Romans 1 starting in verse 1, and that's not correct. Let me. Romans chapter 1, and yeah, we're going to start before 20. Um, Excuse me for my 18, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. This is Paul's argument for for natural revelation. And what we see here in Psalm 29, keep your finger here at Romans chapter 1, okay? But go back to Psalm 29. And what we see here in the first two verses gives us that picture of where we're headed in this psalm. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do his name. Do his name. Worship him in holy array. Psalm 19 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Does does the creation really reveal who God is? Think for a minute. Does it really do that? Okay, most of us are thinking, yeah, absolutely it does. All you have to do is is go out and see the majesty of creation. Um, I know that anyone here who who sees an Arizona sunset, yeah, we live around here a lot, but do they still not take your breath away? Yeah. And, And you get out where it's dark, like in the middle of the desert, and you look up and you see the Milky Way, and you wonder, God, how in the world... Do it, is it that you even take notice of us? You are so majestic, and we cannot escape that. And yet, our world, our, our, our culture seems to not get it. We think that it, that, uh, come on, one plus one equals two. Come on. This, this makes sense, doesn't it? And yet, Yet they don't seem to get it. Why, why is that? Why do so many people not understand that reality? Well, Paul goes on in verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, I love this because it, it, it describes our culture. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen and amen. Can I get an amen? Yeah. That describes our our culture today, doesn't it? It describes a lot of people. And, and, and in this psalm, Psalm 29, 
we're going to discover that, that David is extolling the Lord's amazing power in creation. Now, a lot of commentators look at this psalm and they see similarities. Um, they see similarities in how it's written to other ancient uh, manuscripts, uh, most specifically uh, Canaanite manuscripts and even, even um, Phoenician um, uh, manuscripts. Phoenicia, we know, is the area that is north of Israel. And Canaan is that area in which Israel proper exists, right? And, and so a lot of scholars think, well, maybe this is a borrowed idea. A borrowed idea. And I have to say that, well, it, it's possible. It's not, it's not, it's not uh, outlandish, I guess, to think so. We have history, even in our, our faith heritage, that borrowed um, modes of worship or, or ideas from the secular place and transformed them into uh, uh, op opportunities for the people of God to learn and to worship. Um, many of you may have heard this idea that that Martin Luther and, and Charles and John Wesley borrowed bar tunes and put religious text to it. Have you ever heard that idea? Yeah, a few of us have. Well, I did a little research this afternoon on that, and it turns out that that is a myth. Yeah, but get this. What they did borrow is the form, the form of music that, that was popular in their day. Um, and it's called bar form. That's how it's known in musical terms. And the bottom line is, it's, how many of you studied poetry once upon a time? A few of us? Okay. Now, within poetry, it's not uncommon to find that there is, a, there is one section and a second section that kind of re sounds like or repeats the first section. And then there's a third section that maybe takes a little turn and does something different. And then there's a fourth section that repeats what you heard in the first two sections. They call that AABA form. And it turns out that we have a lot of that going on in our culture even today. And so that's really what, what um, when you hear that Martin Luther and Charles and John Wesley uh, used bar tunes to, to uh, write their religious text to so that people would remember the theology that in, is in the hymn that they, that they wrote, well, that's really what's going on. But I have to tell you, there is another person within our Christian heritage that did exactly that. He, he actually borrowed, or I think he would say he stole, he stole tunes, secular tunes, and put religious text to it. His name was William Booth. Do you know who William Booth is? 
He's the, yeah, he's the, he's the founder of the Salvation Army. We know that, you know, the Salvation Army band, right? That's kind of their moniker. Well, that started because he knew that music got the attention of people. And playing familiar tunes, putting new words to them, was a great way to not only teach, but to, to redeem the, the work. I, I love this quote by him. He says, you must sing good tunes. Let it be a good tune to begin with. I don't care how much, whether you call it a, a secular or sacred tune. I rather enjoy robbing the devil of his choicest tunes after his subjects themselves. Music is about the best commodity he possesses. It is like taking the enemy's guns and turning them against him. That's William Booth's idea. And, and uh, so that actually did happen within our Christian heritage. It's happening today, too. How many of you uh, know uh, during Christmas, the last couple, we have sung here in this church a hallelujah Christmas? You know the tune? Alleluia, 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 alleluia. That's Leonard Cohen. He's as secular as they come. But somebody rewrote the words to that song so that it could serve as a really wonderful expression of the truth of the, uh, the birth of Jesus. So that's, that's what's going on. Now, all of that sidetrack is to say that some scholars think that, that David may have borrowed this form. Maybe, some even say, maybe he borrowed some of the ideas within the text as well. Because the Canaanite God, the Canaanite God, do you remember his name? It's worthy of forgetting. Okay. We often call it Baal or Baal. And uh, he was a, this, this was a God, small g, of fertility. And he was personified within nature. And most specifically, even within the weather formations, thunderstorms, etc. So um, that, that may be going on here. Does it matter? Probably not. Probably not. This is just education for us because the reality is, is that what is spoken in Psalm 29 is truth and it is glorious truth. This, the, the, the psalm itself, uh, we'll discover as we look at it more specifically, could be standing as an assault against the idea of, of uh, the worship of Baal or Baal uh, because he is very specific about some of the imagery, imagery that he uses, i.e. thunder and lightning and, and the power and majesty that is a part of that. There are also, you'll find in here, there, there is uh, a, some major repetition going on. What do you see that's repeated? The voice of the Lord, right? Count how many times the voice of the Lord is, is mentioned here. 
How many times do you see? Seven. Is there anything specific about the number seven that rings a bell with you? Well, within within um, um, Jewish culture and the religious tradition um, that we have within the the Bible, the number seven is a number of perfection. And so this number, this repeating those words, the voice of the Lord seven times says, God is more than awesome. He is more than supernatural. He is all sufficient. He is comprehensive. His sovereignty knows no limit. Okay, that's, that's, that's what the form itself is saying to us. Now, okay, enough of that. Let's get into the text. Verse 1. Verse 1 and 2, I think we can say, are a call to worship. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory, the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Now, what does the word ascribe mean? That's an old word, right? What's it mean? Anybody got an idea? To give to, right, absolutely. It means to give. So give to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Now, wait a second. Can we give any of that to God? I mean, his glory is really all sufficient, right? Can we give glory to God? Well, absolutely we can. Absolutely we can. I don't know that we can add to his glory, but we can absolutely give him glory and honor. It's interesting that the word ascribe carries with it the idea that this is an imperative. This is an absolute must. Um, It is a declaration. Now, the word Lord here, that, that is transcribed for us here in English is that unspeakable name of God. Do you remember we talked about that on this, week, uh, this past weekend? Yahweh. We call it, we, we transliterate it Yahweh. Um, it's really written, uh, um, the English transliteration would be Y-H-W-H. And can you speak that? No, you can't. It is, it is an unspeakable name. And in fact, uh, in, in uh, conservative Jewish culture, they, they, don't even, they don't even try to say it. It's just, it's, it's a blank spot because it is, the thought is that the name of the Lord is so holy that we cannot even utter it. Um, I... I love the fact that there is that kind of reverence, but I also love the fact that as believers, we bear the righteousness of Christ. We need not fear the holiness of God. Uh, Rather, we are embraced by it. The the idea of Yahweh is that he is the self-existent eternal God. Now, 
the first verse, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the, of, of the mighty. Who in the world are the sons of the mighty? Well, what we are looking at here, if we, if we look at um, other references to the sons of the mighty within the Bible, we discover pretty quickly that we're talking about angelic beings. We're not talking about, um, we're not talking about the sons of mighty men. We're talking about angelic beings. Um, Psalm 89 uh, describes that. Uh, verse 5 through 7. I'll let you, you can take that note if you want and study it later. But I, I really like what we see in Isaiah chapter 6. And, and I know this is a very familiar passage to many of you. There Isaiah sees a vision of, of what heaven is like after his, his uh, dear friend and, and revered uh, leader Uzziah dies. He says in verse 1 of Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We see that echoed in the book of Revelation, don't we? A, a similar setting there. So this, the sons of the mighty are these angelic beings. I don't think they're limited to uh, the seraphim. They very well may include the angels. Um, but those who are ministering to the Lord in, in worship. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory, do his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The word worship here means to prostrate. It's uh, the, the Hebrew word. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, um, um, it, it, it would be Saha or Shaha. Um, I, when I was in college, I heard that word. And, and um, I was part of a, a, a worship group, and we decided to call ourselves Shada because we thought that, that that's what this means that that's what this idea of worship is. And that word itself means to prostrate, to prostrate, to lay out, to completely bend, not only bend the knee, but, but completely surrender and be prostrate. What, what does that position um, reveal? It reveals vulnerability, doesn't it? It reveals absolute surrender. It, it reveals that in a voluntary way, you are saying, whoever you are bowing down to, you are over me. You are sovereign. You are 
you are completely, you have complete control of me. And that's what the idea of worship is. Um, now, worship is giving to God, isn't it? Ascribe means giving. It's not getting from God. Hmm. How does that translate into our life together today? Have you ever left the uh, sanctuary and had this conversation or heard this conversation? I really didn't get anything out of worship today. Ever heard, have you ever heard that? I think some of us have. Um, some of us have, have also heard the, the thought, I, I, I just can't worship. I just, there's barriers here. Maybe it's too loud. Maybe it's, it's um, I can't sing the songs that, or I don't like the songs. Um, and, and we just can't worship. Well, you know what? Worship is about giving to God, not getting from him. That's a, that's a significant principle that at, as believers, we need to embrace our culture, um, I'm sorry I speak so much about that, but it's, it's, it, we're steeped in it, aren't we? And we have to really work at changing our understanding and our mind about it because our culture uh, gives us this idea that we go to church to get. We, we gather with other believers to get. It's, and it's got to be convenient. And it shouldn't last too long because, you know, my, my keister can't sit too long. And, and I've, um, it's, it's got to be something that pleases me. And we operate with that kind of mentality. Now, I'm not suggesting that, that worship and fellowship, study of God's word, shouldn't be enjoyable. Please don't, don't hear me saying that. But we don't come to worship in order to get or to receive. We come to worship to give to God. Now, here in verse 2, it says, Worship the Lord in holy array. What do you suppose that means? Holy array. You know, when I read that, the first thing I think of is uh, holy vestments. Anybody know what that word means? Who grew up in a, in a uh, liturgical setting? Anybody? In a Catholic church, a Lutheran church? Okay. And the priest wears vestments, right? Usually wears a robe and, and uh, sometimes a, a, a tunic over the robe. And those are called vestments. And, and I, t you know, when I, I first look at that, that's what, I, that's what I think about. Worship the Lord in holy array or a holy, dare I say, costume or holy uniform, maybe. And yet when you, when you stop and look at this, um, it is, it is um, th there's something really rich here. Um, the word holy means um, set apart, uh, separate from, something that is completely other. 
The word array means decoration or more, I, I think it's, it may be uh, translated in, in, your, in different, your Bible differently. Um, in the New King James Version, what we read is worship him in the beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness. In the NIV, it says the splendor of his holiness. The, what is the beauty or the splendor of his holiness? Again, holiness means um, apartness, set apartness. Um, these worshipers are to submit to Yahweh in the adornment of being separated. Separated. Separated from what? I love this, this thought that we're crafting right now. As we venture into holiness, what are we separated from? Think about it. What does Jesus separate us from? Our guilt? Our sin? Right? And so there is a this the, the beauty, the 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 holy array is includes that separation from that which is unholy. The, the, the word array again means includes that idea of beauty. Um, and, and, and so we the beauty of holiness, think about the beauty of his holiness. It's not our holiness. We worship in the beauty of the holiness of Jesus, right? As believers. Now, in the context of, the, of this psalm, who's he speaking to here? Angelic beings, right? So does this work? Does this idea that we're talking about work with the, uh, with the idea of angelic beings? Worship the Lord in holy array or the beauty of holiness, you angelic beings, you? If, it, if we include the idea that holiness is being separated from sin or set apart from sin, well, of course, angelic beings are going to be separated from sin, right? I mean, so why, why this call to worship like that? Do you remember the first chapter of Job? Remember what we read there? Let me, let me take you there for a minute. First chapter of Job, verse, starting in verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And the sons of God here are these angelic beings. They came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him 
on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. It is possible within the realm of the angelic for evil to exist. There is a clear separation between the angels of the Lord and the angels of darkness, absolutely. But it's interesting that at the beginning of this psalm, David David calls out even to the angelic beings and says, worship him separated from evil. Worship him in holy array. Worship him in the beauty of of holiness. Romans 12:1 Paul writes, "Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship." And we're called to offer praise to his name, Hebrews 13. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Beyond this, we are called to worship God in the beauty of holiness. And our holiness, our holiness is Jesus Christ himself who clothes us with his righteousness. He becomes our holiness. Paul writes in in 2 Corinthians 5, this passage that still leaves me scratching my head every time I I read it, but it's, it's God's truth. Paul writes, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness and holiness go together. Isaiah chapter 61 we see this image of the cladding of the saint with the righteousness of God. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord, writes Isaiah. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. You get the image that God has given us his righteousness and it's his holiness that we stand in. It's his set-apartness that we approach God with. Now let's go on to verse 3 in, in Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory, the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many, many waters. God rules over the waters. All you have to do is look back at at Genesis chapter 1 in creation. The first three days of creation include the idea of the Lord's sovereignty over water. He rules over waters. In the New Testament, very recently on the weekend, we we, uh, found out in Mark that Jesus himself has amazing power. Yes, it's sovereign power, but it's described for us and and blows the disciples away with with his sovereign power 
in how he stills the storm. Do you remember that? I love, I love the way that, that um, uh, we have it translated in, in the New American Standard. Uh, the, the, here they are on the lake, and the dis- disciples are, are worried as all get out, and Jesus is asleep in the boat, and they wake him up, and they say to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Don't you care, Jesus? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. Just like that. And we see the sovereignty of God here. The storm of this psalm, Psalm 29, and of the gospel account here in in Mark, um, may also represent for us demonic chaos. Very often that's what the sea, the imagery of the sea in the Bible represents. Uh, Demonic chaos. It's not, um, uh, it's interesting to me that right now our brothers and sisters in Florida are being uh, tormented by a storm, a storm called a hurricane. And I believe it, it maybe you can correct me, I haven't seen the news all day, but uh, it was supposed to make landfall as a Category 4 storm. And I, has, have any of you ever been in a hurricane? A couple of you? Um, I, I'm not sure, I can't imagine exactly what it's like except to, to see just um, wind that you can't stand up in. They're talking about 140 miles an hour winds with this Category 4, four storm and rain that doesn't come down like this. It's going like this. It's missiles. It's like it, you can't stand out in it. And everything is blowing apart. And not only that, there's a flood coming. And it's a violent flood. It's not, it's not just the slow rising of water. It's a violent surge. And in the, in the scripture, very often, the storm and water is, is uh, likened to the chaos that is part of the devil's handiwork. And I have to say that it's a, it's a very good description because very often when the enemy is at work, what he's doing is creating chaos. Because we, as, we as, as humans um, don't typically know how to deal with that. Very often we need the supernatural work of God in our lives to be able to say, hush, hush, be still. We also see the Lord's power um, over water in Exodus. We, we see Moses, we say Moses, part, part of the Red Sea. Who part of the Red Sea? God did, yeah. All Moses did was put his staff out. 
and the, 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 the sea parted. And after that experience, um, we have recorded in Exodus 15 what's known as the Song of Moses. And, and um, it's interesting. He says here, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. What's he talking about? He's talking about the pursuit of the enemy, the pursuit of Pharaoh and his army. And, and that, that encapsulates or looks very clearly like um, the chaotic work of the enemy. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, the horse and the rider he's hurled into the sea. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart, in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword and my hand will destroy them. But then Moses responds, you blew your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. That's the Lord's power. Verse four, we'll get through verse four and five tonight. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. Since God is called, or since God is called the glory, the God of glory, and his voice is power and is full of majesty, giving glory and strength to his name is simply honestly reflecting back to him the appropriate response. Lord, you are powerful. You are glory. You are, you are majesty in every respect. His voice breaks the cedars of Lebanon um, by the flash of lightning, perhaps. We see that actually in verse 7. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. That's the picture of, of lightning. Um, the, the cedars of Lebanon, what in the world does that mean? Who knows where Lebanon is? Okay, where is it? Right, right. It's in the Middle East. Good call. And it is, it is just north of, of Israel, just, just north of their northern border. Um, and it's interesting to me that, that um, the cedars of Lebanon are, are highlighted in the scripture as, as, um, as an illustration of pride. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12, there Isaiah writes, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up. You see that comparison between the cedars of Lebanon and simple, simple exalted pride? God brings 
pride to the bottom. He will bring every proud nation low. That's the, that's the picture here in verses four and five. Um, this business of, of uh, trying to operate in pride, pride and, and worship don't mix. It's oil and water. They do not mix. Um, you, you, cannot, you cannot approach God with any kind of haughty spirit, any thought of yourself, or it's honestly not worship. And so that's what we, we see here in this psalm is this refining of this idea of what worship really is. And, and it is something that, um, again, the psalmist, David, is, is writing here about he's calling all of heaven to enter into worship. But with that call, we are invited as well. And we cannot come in pride at all. We will not approach God in pride. We can show up in a building, but we will not approach God at all in pride. Um, He may let us live, but he will not let us close to him if we are prideful. It just does not work. I thought we were going to get through Psalm 29. Um, So we'll finish it next week, okay? It's amazing how much is in there, isn't there? Um. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your blessing and for um, the fact that that not only do you, um, not only do you deserve praise, but Lord, you also desire praise. Not only do you deserve worship, but you desire worship. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that that you make it possible for us to enter into this worship space with you because it is upon your holiness that we find audience with you. We thank you, Lord, that that is a beautiful thing that worshiping you in the beauty of holiness is the beauty of resting, resting securely in your provision for us. That is a beautiful, beautiful understanding of your grace. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, help us, live in your grace more faithfully. Please don't let us drift away into a place of of, uh, rebellion or attitude that says, I stand in my own capability. Thank you, Lord, that you deal with us in such a way that um, 
our salvation is secure and your grip on us won't fail. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. 